This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. We are just thrilled to have Kevin Rudd deliver the inaugural Susan Shirk Lecture. He is a two-time Prime Minister of Australia and President of the Asia Society. Dr. Rudd is a statesman a keen observer of China, and a most influential voice on China and U.S.-China relations. He's also an avid student of China, and you'll notice I said Dr. Rudd, because he just obtained his doctoral degree from Oxford this month. So congratulations. (laughs) And unlike many others who are writing on China, who see things as black and white, One thing I've really enjoyed about reading Dr. Rudd's recent book, which is also on sale here, um, is that he is able to see the gray areas. And coming from Australia, he doesn't see U.S. the way China sees U.S. or China the way U.S. sees China. He can see it from a bit of a high-level perspective. So really, really uh, useful insights. Um, so after the event, um, so and as I said, this will be uh, available. So with that, why don't we go ahead and get started? Dr. Rudd, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, and um, please don't tell my examiners at Oxford, because I haven't got the final letter yet. <laughs> I've just got a nod and a wink, and you've passed, mate. So uh, so long as this secret is between you and me and everyone watching on YouTube, uh, we'll be safe. So uh, uh, I uh, have been through four years through the valley of the shadow of death, otherwise called a PhD program. And emerged out the other side, and my doctoral dissertation is on defining Xi Jinping's ideological worldview. So it's always a great conversation starter. Um, not. Uh, so, uh, but I thought I should do it in order to wrap my mind around the uh, question I'm often asked by heads of government and foreign ministers around the world. Who's Xi Jinping? What does he think? Why does he think that way? What's he want? What's he going to do? Um, I'm here also, um, and here primarily uh, because of Susan Shirk. Uh, Susan is an extraordinary member of the Academy. If you look at uh, what she has published throughout her academic career, uh, it would fill half of the Bodleian uh, in Oxford. That's a very big library. Um, and, uh, and it's first-class scholarship. So her contribution to this nation's and the world's understanding of contemporary China is formidable. And I say that as one who's just graced the halls of the academy myself. Um, But there's another reason as well. I've met so many students over the years who've benefited from her pastoral interest in their well-being and in their academic formation. Uh, Not all academics are like that. Uh, that is, taking to heart the interests of someone who is seeking to carve out their space in the wonderful world of letters and learning. And there's another reason as well. 
her record in government service in the State Department and contributing to public policy in this country. So for those reasons, uh, Susan, I was honoured to receive your invitation to deliver this inaugural Susan Shirk Lecture on US-China relations. Congratulations, Susan. <clears throat> the, uh, is uh, Liz Economy here at all? Oh, there's Liz, yeah. So I was seeking some preparation before, uh, Susan, so I found Liz in the audience, and I said, as I walked into the conference, which you've convened and brought together this extraordinary gaggle or barnyard of sinologists from around the world and around Australia, I said to, I said to Liz, this is a bit intimidating. Like, I, I haven't even graduated yet as a, as a DPhil. These people really know what they're talking about. I said, I can't just go in there and blather on. He said, yes, she said, yes, you can. You always do. Uh, <laughs> she's very deflating, Liz Economy. It was like uh, when I was talking to Liz a year or so ago, and she commented on my new look. See the beard? So actually, that's just an overnight growth uh, in Australia. And um, I said, well, I'm, going in, I'm entering my Hemingway phase, uh, to which she said, no, Kevin, think either Colonel Sanders or Santa Claus, that's more. <laughs> it's a good thing that we Australian politicians are of robust ego. So I thank you for that career-forming advice and counsel, Liz. And I said to her privately earlier today, I will get you back. <laughs> the, um, but then I asked for some advice from Susan herself. I said, the Susan Shirk lecture, what's it to be? And she said, well, in our family, there's only one Susan Shirk lecture, and that's what my daughters say. And that is whenever we go out uh, and, uh, and Susan says, have you got your lipstick? That's the Susan Shirk lecture. I can't compete with that. I'm sorry. The title of uh, this address uh, is The Chinese Economy, the 20, 20th Party Congress, and Implications for U.S.-China Relations. You'll be pleased to know that I've prepared 10,000 words. If you think I'm joking... Here they are. But you may also be pleased to know I'm not going to read them. Um, but consistent with what I often do, we'll post that online and I'll speak to the propositions which are outlined uh, in the prepared remarks. And I've been told that we have a 30-minute limit and I will stick to that. Very soon, in fact, within three months, we're going to have the 20th Party Congress. Those of you who follow Chinese politics will know that the Congresses are a significant event. I would argue that the 20th Party Congress will be the single most significant event in 40 years. Those of us who follow the business know that the 12th Party Congress, back in 1982, effectively laid the ideological foundations for where we are in contemporary China today. It's the inauguration, in effect, of the Deng Xiaoping era. Uh, that Congress... Uh, Deng Xiaoping formally used the instruments of Marxism-Leninism to ideologically define the new era. How did he do that? He said, our number one contradiction, Chinese term is ma dun, uh, is to unleash the factors of production. We're no longer going to be concerned about the relations of production, which is code language and Marxism-Leninism for class and class inequality. We are going to let it rip as far as the economy is concerned. And so he did. And secondly, what Deng did, largely from that Congress, was say that the purpose of Chinese foreign policy was to serve that domestic end. Uh, 
And so therefore, China's engagement with the world uh, would be uh, primarily to serve the interests of China's economic growth through a policy of reform at home and opening abroad. And the third thing he did at that Congress was he uh, used the instrumentality of this ultimate decision-making body of the party to ratify a decision taken the previous year in 81, which was the decision on certain questions in party history, which was the party's formal historical evaluation of Mao Zedong. And Mao Zedong's extraordinary concentration of political power, Mao Zedong's use and abuse of the cult of personality, Mao Zedong's abuse of the concept of um, lifelong tenure, uh, and also Mao Zedong's uh, undermining of the principles of collective party leadership. All there in black and, black and white, tick. Deng Xiaoping's evaluation of Mao at the time, 70% good, 30% bad. And Deng, being a smart politician, said, better than me. And that's having been purged by, Deng, by Mao on a number of occasions. So 40 years ago at this 12th Party Congress, that's how the Communist Party framed its future. That changed under Xi Jinping, beginning in 2012, accelerated in uh, 2017 at the 19th Party Congress, and I predict accelerated further at the 20th Party Congress to be held this five-yearly event in October-November this year. Xi Jinping has already taken the first of those Deng Xiaoping propositions, which is using again the ideological tools of Marxism-Leninism, not to say that unleashing the factors of production is the central contradiction or challenge of the Communist Party today, but instead in 2017 saying, no, that's gone too far. We now need to begin to address questions of class equality, inequality through what he calls unbalanced development. And so the beginnings or the headwaters of deep ideological change began then. Also under Xi Jinping, you've seen Deng's second proposition, which is that uh, the instrument or the instrumental purpose of foreign policy, which has served China's domestic development needs, also turned on its head. Xi Jinping's first major conference on foreign policy in November of 2014, called in the parlance the Central Work Conference on Foreign Affairs. Uh, he said that instead, China should now engage in a long-term struggle to change the international system. And so that put paid to the second uh, of the Deng Xiaoping axioms. And within that, Deng Xiaoping's subsidiary concept that Chinese foreign policy would always hide its strength, bide its time and never take the lead. And Deng Xiaoping said, no, we're ripping right ahead and we're changing the world in our own image. Sorry, Xi Jinping said, we're ripping ahead and changing the world in our own image. And the third significant change, again using that frame of what Deng Xiaoping did way back then, uh, was in Deng Xiaoping's argumentation about uh, Mao Zedong's excessive concentration of political power and authority in the hands of a single man. And so significantly, when you read the text of the party's most recent resolution on party history, which was produced on the 100th anniversary of the party's founding on the 1st of July last year. Um, as it reflects on that 100 years, and it reflects in turn on the party's resolution on history 40 years before, it does not refer to any of those provisions 
that were adopted by the party in 1982 on uh, the cult of personality, on collective leadership, and on lifelong tenure. So on these three core Deng Xiaoping propositions, which defined uh, the era post-1982, uh, what Xi Jinping did was come out and through the instruments of the party, nail each one of them to the ground and embark upon a new reality. What I intend to do in my remaining time here today is not to explore the granular detail of each of those propositions, but I want to use that as the background to begin to explore where does the economy stand today, what is likely to be the political outcome at the 20th Party Congress itself in terms of appointments and ideology, and then thirdly, what does all that mean for China's role in the world, China's posture towards the United States in what is the fundamental relationship of global interest today, the future of the US-China relationship? The subject of my book, and now that I'm in retail, buy many copies, please. <laughs> there will be a set of free steak knives for those who buy the most. <laughs> Firstly, on the Chinese economy. As you know, as internationally engaged Americans, uh, the miracle story of the Chinese economy since Deng Xiaoping did what he did in 1982 is there for all to see. I don't need to recount the data for you. But when we look at the most recent performance of the Chinese economy, it has begun to slide. And one of the analytical questions we face is, why is that so? Of course, the proximate cause is often given in terms of the impact of COVID, zero COVID lockdowns across uh, many metropolitan center in China this year. And plainly, that has had a palpable effect. If you look at the growth numbers for the second quarter, 0.4, plainly, that's a, that is a product of major cities like Shanghai and elsewhere being locked down for extended periods of time. And Xi Jinping has indicated no intention to change his zero-COVID policy for the foreseeable future, at least in my estimation, not until the 20th Party Congress is safely under his political belt. Because Xi Jinping, you may recall in 2020, proclaimed China's victory over COVID, while the rest of us in the capitalist world, led by the United States, but the other uh, countries of Western Europe and the other democracies languished in their inability to control the, the virus. So when the boomerang came back to China, the principle at stake is this, the leader can never be wrong. There is zero COVID, and we're going to maintain that policy of zero COVID so that the leader, in fact, can be proven never to have been wrong. But if we're seeking to understand what's happening in the economy, that is a very superficial analysis. It is much more fundamental than that. In fact, what I've been writing uh, consistently since about 2018 is about this series of policy measures undertaken by Xi Jinping largely since the 19th Party Congress back in 2017, which in my argument have systematically taken the centre of gravity of Chinese economic policy to the left, by which I mean a preferencing of state-owned enterprises over private firms, a preferencing of state planning over individual initiative, a preferencing of industrial policy rather than the combustion of enterprise and innovation within individual private firms, and other such changes. If you were to list them, it's a bit like this. We've seen the revitalization of industrial policy on a grand scale with massive industrial funds. 
the resuscitation of a doctrine of national self-sufficiency in the, in the economy, the party's mandatory representation, the management of private firms, including in their recruitment policies, the co-option of private firms into the party's united front effort, Tongjian, the so-called mixed economy model, which is code language for mixed equity arrangements between SOEs and private firms, a party rectification campaign against the legal and judicial system, reminding all that the courts are there to serve the interests of the party and never to be independent arbitrators between one corporate or economic entity uh, and the other. A crackdown in particular on tech platforms under the rubric of national competition policy, while happily leaving existing public monopolies untouched. A separate crackdown on what she describes as the fictitious economy, a term, by the way, derived from Marx's Dutch Capital, and it refers, in fact, to a form of capital which is largely involved in speculative activity, particularly in finance and property. The launching and then the rapid unlaunching of Xi's common prosperity agenda on the question of income redistribution and a new mechanism of Xi's so-called dual circulation economy, uh, whereby the party aims to maximize the world's economic dependence on the Chinese market while minimizing China's economic dependence on the world through national self-sufficiency. All of which can now be summed up in what Xi Jinping describes as his new development concept. The new development concept is a new economic framework, or perhaps at best a conceptual chapeau, uh, for the next stage of China's economic development, which is itself part of Xi Jinping's self-proclaimed new era, Xin Shidai, in Chinese politics, which Xi first proclaimed at the 19th Congress. This overall move to the left through this series of measures over the last five years has had a palpable effect on private sector business confidence, on private sector fixed capital investment activity, and on foreign direct investment activity over time. And the numbers speak for themselves, both in relation to what's happened and unfolded in the tech sector, and most recently, of course, in the property sector as well. When you analyze the growth performance of a particular economy, uh, it's derivative of a number of key indicators, underlying demographics, as well as the classic basis for calculating GDP, a combination of private consumption, uh, government uh, expenditure through investment, uh, private residential construction, uh, as well as private fixed capital investment, as well as net exports. There's no magic to calculating gross domestic product. They are its uh, conceptual, analytical, and uh, methodological uh, tools of analysis. On the underlying uh, calculus, therefore, of why China's growth rate has been sliding for some time now, from an average of 10 a decade ago to an average of 6 uh, in the pre-COVID period to where we are now, bumping around 1, 2 or 3, and with the projection to the future that maybe Chinese growth will return to trend, meaning around 3, we are in potentially into a significant historical shift, potentially. The jury is still out. We don't finally know. But with these ingredients alive in the policy domain, derived from the ideological changes which I described before, it seems to me that there is a trend afoot, unless policy correction ensues. 
And the final ingredient in this economic equation are the underlying factors of demography with which this room will be well familiar. A rapidly aging population, uh, a birth rate running at about 1.1, 1.16, much less than this country's, uh, and an age dependency ratio going through the roof in terms of the number of working people needing to support the number of people who are retired. And most fundamentally, the impact which this retrenchment of the private sector has had over the last decade on declining productivity growth. See, the ultimate mathematics is as, is as follows. Growth is determined by three Ps, population, workforce participation, and the productivity of the workforce. When your population is shrinking and your workforce is contracting and your productivity growth unusually for a developing economy, is bumping along the ground. There is, to quote the British, trouble at mill. Then you go to these drivers of economic growth, private consumption down, a lack of consumer confidence, and over time, not just COVID-related. You look at private fixed capital investment down. You look at residential construction, given the crisis unfolding the property sector down. The two things that are working for China at the moment are government investment and net exports. And so when you look at the outcome of the Politburo meeting on the economy just three days ago, its conclusions were significant. It wasn't a set of policy recommendations to attend to A, B and C above. It was doubling down on E and F above. And E and F above are government investment and infrastructure and a further promotion of net exports through some of the mercantilist approaches we've seen in Chinese economic policy so far. My overall argument, therefore, is that as we look to China's future, the state of the economy, as we have historically assumed it, driven in part, not in whole, by Xi Jinping's ideological predilection to move the centre of gravity away from the market and back to the state, is beginning to deliver a set of numbers in the real economic world which should be troubling to those governing China today. Which brings us to politics. The 20th Party Congress ultimately is about politics. It is also about ideology and it is also about economic policy direction at the most macro level. When we look at the 20th Party Congress, um, the first question that we ask is, will there be political continuity in terms of Xi Jinping? Uh, to which the answer, in my judgment, and I think speaking uh, to most of the Sinologists gathered in this room, is that yes, Xi Jinping will be reappointed, overwhelmingly. In fact, of the total vote of the Congress, some several thousand delegates, I'm not anticipating a single vote against. If so, Comrade Wang's name and address will be taken down. But this is not, shall we say, a normal and natural event. Um, the reason is that part of the convention established by Deng Xiaoping after the period of Mao Zedong was to limit the terms uh, in office for those who occupied the position of the presidency of the country to two terms. Xi Jinping changed that by constitutional means uh, at the National People's Congress following the 19th Party Congress. So no more term limits. Secondly, not only has that constitutional problem been removed, but the age limit has been effectively removed as well. So that the, the um, previous informal arrangement of what's called qi shang, ba xia, which is if you're under 67, you can go up, 
if you're over 68 at the time of the Congress, then you can't go up, you go down. Because by the end of that five-year period, you'll be, quote, too old. No longer applicable in the case of Xi Jinping. But perhaps the most fundamental reason why we see uh, the rest of us in the analytical world confident of Xi Jinping's reappointment has been his sheer, relentless Machiavellian capacity uh, to concentrate political power and to purge his political opponents, real or imagined. I have a feeling that when the history of this period is written of 2012 to 2022, it may well be described as the Great Purge. We do not know how many people are purged. I know a number personally who have been purged. And for the argument that all these folks are guilty of individual acts of corruption, it's not universally persuasive. But for these reasons, which is the constitutional legal constraints have been removed, the age limit has been removed, the purging of political opponents, and the consolidation of political power in his own hands, it is in our judgment collectively as people analysing these events that it would be remarkable if Xi Jinping was not appointed for a further term. It's interesting when you look at the party's literature most recently on how the retention of Xi Jinping long-term as a central leader has been justified. Here we turn to a recent major article by Chu Qingshan, uh, president of the Central Committee Institute of Party History and Literature, published on the 7th of July this year. Uh, a particularly snappy title to this article, quote, New Journey, New Thought, New Chapter, Understanding the Five Dimensions Necessary to Master the Two Establishers, unquote. What does that mean in code language? Um, in code language, it means establishing Xi Jinping as the party core, as well as the core position of the entire party, plus establishing the leading position of Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for the new era, unquote. Why is this article important? Because the author is the individual who was responsible for authoring, drafting the party's resolution on party history on the 1st of July last year. He's the leading party theoretician. Sorry, leading party historian, not the theoretician, though he's a theoretician as well. So for those reasons, the argument was advanced that that is the party's current mission. But delve deeper, how does he justify retaining Xi Jinping's role? And you go to the next paragraph. He justifies the continuation of Xi's rule on three grounds. First, to deal with the pressing needs arising from changes in the world. That is the world outside China, which the world has not seen in a 100 years. Second, to be, quote, on guard against and deal with the risks and challenges which stand in the way of realizing the China dream of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, unquote. And we all know what that means. The Zhonghua Minzu Wei Da Fuxing is an expression which is the encapsulation of Xi Jinping's nationalism. Uh, it is a view which says China will become the preeminent global power by mid-century, by 2049, and if you read carefully Xi Jinping's prognostications on Taiwan, that the reunification with Taiwan will be achieved by that time. So risks to that is the second reason given for Xi Jinping's uh, longevity. And third, quote, to promote the party's own internal revolution, 推进党的自我革命, 
to submit itself to examination as we embrace the urgent needs of the future. In other words, to maintain an iron grip on the party itself. So where does that leave us? It leaves us uh, with the inevitability of Xi Jinping's uh, reappointment as General Secretary. But my argument uh, is that it will not be simply for a period of five years. Uh, it will be not just for 10 years. It will probably be for 15 years. Now that will take us through to the 23rd Party Congress in 2037. And there's a logic for that. If Xi Jinping was to retire, given his responsibility for the great purge within the party, history tends to indicate that those who have purged others, those who get purged in their families, have a very long memory. And therefore, you place yourself in a position of some personal vulnerability. But there's a second reason as well, which is Xi Jinping sees himself very much as the person entrusted with history as a Hegelian Marxist with the task of steering this revolutionary party, the Chinese Communist Party, through the task of bringing China to its great national renaissance and rejuvenation by 2049. 2049 would be stretching it against any rules of longevity. Xi Jinping would be pressing 97 by about then. But he is of uh, robust uh, genetic stock. His mother is still alive, and his father lived to a ripe age well into his 80s. And so the real question, I think, coming out of the 20th Party Congress, given where we are in the economy, is this. Not whether Xi Jinping will emerge as General Secretary, but what will happen with the other 25 members of the Politburo, 10 of whom will be retired for age reasons, leaving 10 vacancies, and most critically, who will occupy the leading positions in the economic team led by the Premier, currently Li Keqiang. Li Keqiang, interestingly, doesn't violate the age principle. But he's already indicated he's going. Li Keqiang has not had the closest of working relationships with Xi Jinping. That would be the worst kept secret uh, in Chinese domestic politics. So the question, therefore, is who therefore inherits the mantle? Will it be Wang Yang? Will it be Hu Chunhua? Will it be those also close to Xi Jinping, namely Li Chang and He Lifeng? Or could it be an outsider like Chen Mingar? Leaving the names to one side, what matters here, coming out of what I said earlier on the economy, is this. Will they have the intellectual architecture? Will they have the political robustness and the independent power to push back against the statist, partyist direction on the economy that Xi Jinping has executed so far? And my argument overall is, when I look at the underlying ideological continuity of Xi Jinping's scepticism about market excess... I do not see any of the candidates for the premiership being sufficiently independently politically powerful to fundamentally alter the current economic course. That is a big judgment because one of the open questions for the international investment community is once we get through the 20th Party Congress, is that in fact when they'll see sense and go back to a more normal approach to a balance between party and market, between state and market, between SOEs and the private sector? I remain to be convinced of that proposition, particularly when I look at the individuals who are up for appointment to that office. There is one wild card here. No one has dared to advance this, but I'm Australian and I don't care. Um, and that is one person also over the age limit is current Vice Premier Liu He, close to Xi Jinping, but himself American trained and a pro-market 
economist. Currently the vice premier, uh, responsible for the economy, but constantly fighting a losing action against those around him. If Xi Jinping became sufficiently convinced that in fact the numbers were moving badly against him in the economy, against the indicators that I referred to before, could there be a roll of the dice to ask his friend, Liu He, with whom he's often seen in public right around China, to remain on, and therefore under those circumstances Liu He as Premier, to exercise more influence in bringing China back to a more pro-market position? This is not a likely prospect, it's a remote prospect, but I add it for reasons of completeness. In my last few minutes, let me touch on the third thing I said I'd address beyond where the economy is now, beyond where uh, the 20th Party Congress may take us in terms of reappointments and appointments and policy continuity, but onto the future of US-China relations itself. There is, on this, given the background of a weakening economy, uh, but still a strengthening of Xi Jinping's domestic political hand, where does that therefore likely to leave the direction which we have seen so far on Xi Jinping in terms of foreign policy in general and the United States uh, in particular. What I was taken by very much is a speech uh, delivered by Xi Jinping literally a couple of days ago on the 27th of July. A lot's happening in Chinese politics as we move to what's called the Beidou beach season of August where the numbers are done and the agreements are reached in terms of who will be in the central leadership slate uh, come the party congress in October, November. At least that's where the initial work is done. So Xi Jinping delivering a speech on the eve of that to the combined gathering of provincial party secretaries, provincial leaders and ministers is a speech which we should read. So I've had a read of this speech. And I'll just quote a little bit of it because it's worth hearing what the man says in his own words. He says, quote, we must deeply analyze the domestic and international situation and scientifically master the strategic threats, risks and opportunities we face. At present, the speed of change we are seeing, we haven't seen in a century. And the defining characteristics of the global changes, the changes of the era in which we are, and the historical changes unfolding before us are becoming clearer and clearer. Then he says, in our development, that's China's development, we face new strategic opportunities, new strategic responsibilities, a new strategic stage, new strategic requirements, and a new strategic environment. And lastly, the entire party must strengthen its consciousness, maintain its bottom line way of thinking, and be resolute in our consciousness of struggle, strengthen our leadership in this struggle, and adopt a correct set of strategies and tactics and techniques to prevail. Much of that language I have not seen before. I've seen some, but what is the, particularly the new phrase, we face new strategic opportunities, new strategic responsibilities, a new strategic stage, new strategic requirements, and a new strategic environment is relatively new. Here is my bold prediction to the Sinological community. It will be now known as the five strategics uh, in the unfolding literature between now and the end of the year. Chinese love, or the Chinese Communist Party, loves enumerating everything. But the reason I emphasize this in the language is why. Up until now, we've had Xi Jinping proclaim a new uh, era. That was from the 19th Party Congress, a Xin Shidai. 
He's also proclaimed in the last couple of years a new economic era. He said that this new economic era requires a revision of traditional approaches to reform and opening and a more interventionist approach to what I described before as the new development strategy. Ideologically, he's also put forward a framework which says, I, Xi Jinping, in order to deal with these challenges, have now given you a new body of ideological thought. Xi Jinping's this young, Xi Jinping thought, to deal with socialism with Chinese characteristics in the new era. So politics, new era, ideology, new era, economy, new era, strategic circumstances, new era. This adds to the public vocabulary. And the reason I emphasize that is ideological language in the Chinese Communist Party is significant. It is the code language through which, at a high level of discourse, the party talks to itself and from which subsequent policy actions usually proceed. So what do I think this means? I think Xi Jinping is beginning to prepare the Chinese Communist Party for a period of long-term confrontation with the United States. That's the language as I read it. That's the way I interpret it. I conclude on this. If that is right, and if Xi Jinping and those around him, including uh, the historical uh, writings that I referred to before by the party historian, is right, and this new era is about these emerging new international uh, strategic challenges, then why is it that the Chinese official system finds it so difficult to accept the fact that China and the United States are now locked into a strategic competition. Both the Trump and the Biden administrations use the term strategic competition. Xi Jinping yesterday in his uh, video summit with President Biden, the third in 18 months, specifically took it upon himself to reject the notion of strategic competition as being the organizing framework for US-China relations. But the day before, he's told the entire gathering of provincial and ministerial leaders that we are preparing right now for long-term ideological struggle against the United States and the West. So why the irreconcilable nature of these statements? It is because, in my judgment, for China, through the Communist Party, to recognize and accept that they are engaged in strategic competition is to is to acknowledge for the first time that they are in search of a mission to become the dominant power regionally and globally, as opposed to the official doctrine at present, which is we, China, are concerned about win-win cooperation. We are concerned about mutual respect for, of each other's political systems. We are concerned instead about the community of common destiny for all humankind. In other words, if you explicitly ideologically acknowledge the fact there is a competition underway, it conveys the reality that you know that this is a competition about who wins. That's what a competition is. A competition rarely results in a nil-all draw. A competition is a race, and it's about determining in a winner. And the characteristics of China's internal ideological discourse is about that, as opposed to its external discourse, which suggests that it's something other. To conclude, therefore, when this Congress is held, for the future of US-China relations, what I see is, one, the United States facing for the next 15 years our most formidable political adversary, Xi Jinping, a formidable political leader. Number two, that the Achilles heel that he has is the state of the economy. 
and he has actually delivered his ultimate trade-off between political control on the one hand, a return to the party and the state, and paying a financial and economic cost in terms of declining growth as the private sector begins to retreat or become more cautious. And thirdly, embracing also a new ideological preparation for a overriding strategic reality for the next five years where the economy becomes less important as a Chinese strategic goal, but preparation for strategic contest with the United States becomes the primary goal. I thank you for your attention. Thank you so much for that thought-provoking discussion. I think it was really the exact, exactly what we were looking for in terms of the inaugural Susan Shirk lecture. Um, so I'm going to start with a couple of questions and then open it up to the audience. And I want to focus on the economy. And I think you made a compelling case and one that I think many of us here agree with that China is going to slow down quite significantly given current policies. And the Chinese themselves, the government has been concerned about a kind of middle income trap. This idea that it's easy to grow from low income to middle income. In 1990, China had the income of a sub-Saharan African country. It's now healthy middle income, but it's harder to grow after. And then on top of that, they have these tremendous challenges, including <laughs> demographics, the state-led development, um, and then tremendous uncertainty in, in tech, but beyond tech, and uncertainty is, of course, the enemy of investment. Um, so part of the reason the government could remain in power so successfully is because growth was high and it was stable. They've had no recessions in the last 40 years or more. Um, how did they remain in power if growth does slow? And doesn't that contradict their main priority to stay in power? She's priority. And as well, how does the U.S. respond to a slowing China? Uh, I think firstly... Um unless there's a course correction in the policy measures I ran through before, I think it's inevitable we're going to have a slowing Chinese growth performance. There's no magic to this. Numbers follow items of economic behaviour um, unless you falsify the numbers. And China's had one effort at that during the Great Leap Forward and it didn't turn out well. Um, so there must be a course correction. Secondly... If they don't course correct and growth continues to slow, then your essential question is what happens to the unspoken social contract between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people? That is, you give us your political rights and we'll give you ever-increasing and a better life and whatever has happened to this. Uh, and um, I'm going to completely screw this up, I know. Sorry. And, um, and so what happens to the social contract? Uh, it begins to fracture. Uh, you begin to see some evidences of that um, with 
Youth unemployment now at 19.3, the highest it's been since the Cultural Revolution. Uh, you also begin to see this at a different level in terms of public protest activity like we saw recently in Zhengzhou about the problem with the Difang uh, Yinhang and the uh, local banks um, over their ability to uh, secure their mortgages effectively in exchange for, for property given mm -hmm. the deleveraging of the Chinese real estate sector. But what's the antidote to this? The antidote to this... Um, uh, in, I think in Xi Jinping's ideological mind, uh, the instruments of profound state control. And that is the surveillance state is now comprehensive. Look how quickly that uh, protest was snuffed out in Zhengzhou. Um, uh, the facial recognition technologies, the social credit scores, the ability now to marshal through big data and artificial intelligence and algorithms uh, what people are saying, doing and where is phenomenal. So therefore, I declining, ever declining or static growth in terms of living standards is an objective problem. But I believe in the party's psychology, what, it's, what it is now quite confident of is its ability to control that in a way in which no previous generation of Chinese political leaders could. That's my best answer to that question. And in terms of the U.S. response, then, um, what do you think if it's about state control and surveillance? Is restricting tech the way to go from the U.S. side, access to technologies? What else would you suggest? Well, my own view on the great decoupling debate, debate is that in the case of the United States, it should be small d rather than capital D be highly selective about that which you identify mm -hmm. as being absolutely uh, strategically relevant to United States global technological advantage and competitive advantage, and therefore that of the um, allied democracies as well. Rather than capital D decoupling, you don't want to end up shooting yourself in the foot. Take, for example, financial services. Last time I looked at the data, that's a $5 trillion business between the two financial systems. I'm not so sure that you want to just throw that out the window and assume there won't be any economic consequences for this country. So I think you need to be highly selective. But secondly, the point I'd make is get ready for decoupling with Chinese characteristics. Your uh, and, um, and, uh, and when I read Xi Jinping's dual circulation economy, when I read the new doctrine of national economic self-sufficiency, this is Xi Jinping saying initially in response to the Trump trade war, but more broadly in response to the geopolitical implosion uh, with uh, the United States, that I'm not going to be on the back foot. I'm not going to be in a passive position waiting for an American determined form of decoupling to happen to me. I will engineer one myself. Now, how that is translated from high strategy to operational characteristics, it's still unclear. But if you talk to people in certain branches of tech, you begin to see that emerging as well. Yeah, the small D, capital D, we, we have another phrase for that, which is, I guess, small gardens and high fences. Um, and I think we have to get that through to Washington. Um, I want to shift to Taiwan, which is the other topic of the day. And some have said that she's third term and maybe longer, as you've proposed, that he could stay in power for quite some time, will be focused on solving the Taiwan problem. And if this is the case, 
First of all, do you think that will be a big part? And if so, will it be via military, coercively, or in the more in the older way of winning the hearts and minds of the people? And how do you think Russia's invasion of Ukraine affects China's calculus on this? Well, I think um, is Bonnie Glazer with us here at the moment. Hi, Bonnie. Well, Bonnie uh, was speaking on this earlier today, and uh, I agree with Bonnie. None of us know what Xi Jinping's mind is on this question. Anyone who pretends to know, um, I think, is either smoking something or they should be. Um, the, um, uh, so um, on the... Uh, but it, it is important, secondly, for us... You're shaking your head, this economy. So. Okay. The... Uh, <laughs> The, uh, but secondly, we would be blind if we did not see elements of intensification of language over time, for which the standout intensification of language uh, is the clear-cut Xi Jinping statement that you cannot achieve the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation in the absence of reunification with Taiwan. So that puts for the first time Taiwan as an ethereal projection into the distant Deng Xiaoping future into real historical time. And let's face it, uh, 2049 is not an eternity around. I intend to come back into Australian politics by then. So. <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> yeah. the, um, I'll be tender age of 90, so it'll be fine. The, uh, um, so we've got to hold these two things in tension, which is we know not the day nor the hour, but there are two things we can monitor, and one is a change in ideological language, the specific stuff on Taiwan, the general stuff I just referred to, oh, yeah. which is I'm quite challenged intellectually by what I describe as the five strategics. This is a new parlance, which we're going to hear more about in terms of the dominant thematic of next term Xi, but that does not automatically equate into therefore I'm taking Taiwan in 2027. Um, and I think the final point on timetabling is, is, and I partly disagree with something Jim said earlier today, uh, Jim Steinberg, is that I do think in the calculus that the Chinese PLA uh, make a deep analysis of their capacity to prevail over US and Taiwanese forces combined, plus the wild card now that is Japan um, in the overall strategic calculus. So what am I most... Com concerned about in terms of a timetable. To the extent that I, and the caveat here is we know not the day nor the hour, but if Xi Jinping is embarking upon a political career through to 2037, he would want uh, politically to achieve this in the early 2030s, I think. But I have no evidence for that other than a hunch. But I know what politicians are like. They like to get things done on their watch. And that's what worries me if you seek to, if you see yourself as, quote, a great man of history, we've seen one of them at work recently, um, Vladimir the Impaler. Um, and then secondly, uh, when he would then enter the Chinese Communist Party ideological pantheon as the equal of Mao, having completed the Chinese revolution by bringing Taiwan back. And what would you advise Joe Biden if he called you up saying, you know China well, you've written this book, um, should, should he keep the strategic ambiguity? Should there be a shift in policy? What would your advice be? 
No, I'm a strong strategic ambiguity man. I always have been. Because we don't know what the future of Taiwanese domestic politics is. That's the key variable here. Uh, as um, Susan was saying to me in the car coming over here, uh, you think of President Tsai Ing-wen in Taiwan. She is uh, remarkably stable um, in terms of managing the politics of the DPP, managing the politics of Taiwan, um, and not um, unnecessarily provoking the Chinese. I knew Chen Shui-bian personally very well, the previous DPP president of, of Taiwan. That was a walk on the wild side, as uh, Steve Hadley will remember from our times in office. Like, what are these guys going to get up to? And what, we, therefore, we don't know is what will be the party primary. I see Doug Pyle here with us as well. That what will be the party primary outcome uh, in the DPP in the lead-up to the 24 presidential election? I don't know. So I think all the arguments are in favour of, therefore, retaining strategic ambiguity. Uh, and secondly, as Jim Steinberg correctly said earlier today in our gathering, um, what material circumstances are advanced by an abolition of strategic ambiguity? I'm not sure, other than, in fact, perhaps, as Bonnie Glazer said, bringing on uh, the invasion that we're seeking to deter. So the real uh, argument, I think, about Taiwan is what can the US and Taiwan domestically do in order to enhance its domestic and combined deterrence, in order to cause the PLA, when Xi Jinping walks into the Central Military Commission on the 2nd of February uh, 2032 and says, how about it, boys? Um, they are tremulous. Uh, I, I am always in favour of a tremulous PLA. Remember the last military engagement, 1979, with the Vietnamese? Didn't turn out well. Remember the last naval engagement by the Chinese Navy, 1895, Shimonoseki, by the Qing Empire? Didn't turn out well. Um, so the United States, for all of its uh, military difficulties in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, if you look at their formidable military and naval history, and this is a country whose armed forces is steeped in doctrine and learning over successive generations of its military. And this is well known. And all the PLA generals I've spoken to, and I've spoken to a lot, um, often in very boozy dinners, uh, <laughs> where you have a bit of the truth syrup applied, and these guys know that their derriere is on the line. Thank you. Let me open it up to questions now. Yes, Don. Uh, I wanted to follow up on the wild card point about Japan. Mm. Uh, we've uh, written their 2022 defense white paper. I read it and it seems pretty aggressive to me from a Japanese perspective. Um, and I wondered uh, where do you think that's leading? And, and we talked a little bit earlier. I heard statements earlier about how uh, I think someone said not to expect much from allies if, uh, if, in fact, China does decide to move on Taiwan. But reading that uh, white paper, I thought perhaps Japan is getting a little bit more nervous about this. <clears throat> I think there's a separate political consciousness emerging in Japan. Japan Abe-san has a huge impact on this. Um, and he moved the dial on so many questions in his extended political career. Uh, he began the, the, the legitimization of the domestic political discourse in Japan on the quantum of the defense budget, on the deployment of Japanese forces in support of uh, third countries uh, in the defense of those third countries where the national security of Japan was under direct threat itself. Um, and 
most recently, uh, before he was appallingly assassinated, uh, he began to broach publicly the possibility of Japan and the future going nuclear. Now, Abe-san's impact in changing the discourse within the uh, LDP has been huge. Kishida-san uh, has, I think, uh, an equally hardline view of China. I think where these hardline views achieve material uh, reality is that when you look at the wargaming scenarios over Taiwan, then US forces in Guam are automatically in target, but also those in Japan, uh, including Okinawa, are in target as well, given the nature of how forces would be deployed under certain contingencies. So therefore, if you are the government of Japan, this is not an abstract question. Uh, you are automatically within the firing range. So I think what the Japanese have done is rather than just dig a hole and put their head in it over this question, that they've decided under uh, both uh, Abe-san, Suga-san and now Kishida-san to say this is a reality and we need to address it. What the landing point will be, I don't know. But what I do know from my engagement personally and professionally as a think tanker now with the Chinese military is they're deeply respectful of the Japanese self-defense force of the maritime arm and the, uh, and the air arm and regard them as formidable potential adversaries. Susan, do you have a question? It's your lecture, so I want to give you the opportunity to ask a question. Thank you. So um, I'm interested in, uh, well, you've given us a pretty pessimistic prognosis for the future of Xi Jinping's rule. But you did mention that 10 of the 25 Politburo members will retire. There is, um, there's going to be some kind of interaction with other Chinese politicians at the top over that. And do you think there is any possibility that a small group of them, including Wang Yang, Li Keqiang, um, kind of get them in a room and say, you know, you have had to accept responsibility for all of these problems in China today, and yet wouldn't it be better if we had a little more power sharing in terms of who are, who leads the leading small groups and uh, re restore a little bit more collective leadership, which in effect would lead to a kind of course correction on the economy. So maybe this is Susan's always uh, overly optimistic hopes for China, uh, but I'm wondering if you think that that's an impossibility or not. Look, I think those of us who have been long-term friends of China, including myself, when we've looked at the way in which the collective leadership of the country has worked over a long period of time, it's been reasonably effective. If I look at the entire Deng Xiaoping period, of course, we are Bang and Zhao Ziyang ended up being purged. But once you get to Jiang Zemin uh, in um, 1989, or oh, 1991, um, and then you uh, look at uh, the Hu Jintao period, 
this was, and you look at the role of the premiers, in particular Zhurongji, and the power that Zhurongji had in driving the economic reform program, less so Wen Jiabao. Um, the remarkable thing about that whole period that in terms of China's economic, political, social, and foreign policy trajectory is that those leaders, I think, were collectively wise enough or perhaps modest enough to say, we don't know what the landing point or the end point is going to be. In other words, they left a whole series of possible, you know, exit ramps. We know from the documentary record that military preparedness and military budgets increased significantly in second term Hu Jintao. But still, if you read the ideological and political writings of Hu Jintao, intended for a domestic audience, they st he still left a range of contingencies open for the future. Not the abolition of a Leninist party, I'm not going down that road, but, shall we say, uh, the ultimate Singaporean destination, which they had as a form of political model, which was long ago discussed between Harry Lee and uh, Deng Xiaoping. Knowing and having spent the last four years myself reading everything that Xi Jinping has written, I do not see that in his political makeup. I don't see it in his ideological makeup. I do not see it in the way in which he has articulated his position within the party. When I see the hagiography and the self, I see the hagiography about him and the fact that people now talk about him openly as Reminding Xiu. Uh, the people's leader. They talk him, uh, about him as the, uh, the the PLA leaders in order to keep their jobs call him the Xin Yuan Shui, the new marshal. Uh, and when you see um, even flirtations with uh, Xin De Duoshou, the new helmsman, or synonyms for, uh, for helmsman like Mao, pilot of the ship, navigator of the ship, you think this is not a guy psychologically predisposed towards sharing. Uh, uh, and then there's the minor matter of everyone he's purged and there's a truckload of them like the, the calculation on how many have been imprisoned in the last 10 years I haven't seen good academic literature on this yet and someone should help me with this it's not my field but people tell me two to three hundred thousand that's a lot of people even in a communist party of 95 million members so therefore I do not see hand-holding uh, as being in his nature. And I, with people who are experts in internal Politburo politics, and I am not, but I know enough to be, to manage a conversation with those who are, uh, it is very difficult to construct the machinery that was used to bring about more fundamental political changes, as occurred, for example, in... Uh, 1976, 1978, and other junctures in history, including 1989. I think we're left with Xi Jinping, and if he chooses to extend power to others, that would be a remarkably mature act. But in the first decade, I haven't seen any evidence of it. That's all. Sobering. Um, I am told to take a question from online. Harry? Yeah. So um, we have a number of questions. Thank you very much. So there's a lot of interest in hearing Dr. Rudd uh, talk some about how some of the Pacific nations, for instance, see themselves in this period of rising competition between the U.S. and China. Uh, in particular, people are interested in how countries 
which have seen different kinds of Chinese attention in recent years, from like Australia, of course, to recently quite prominently the Solomon Islands, are seeing this economic and political dilemma they're facing in this period of rising competition. So sort of, what does this competition mean for some of these states who might feel caught in the middle? Well, I think all states, large and small, other than the United States and China themselves, and now Russia and Iran, uh, to some extent feel themselves caught in the middle. All states, I think, wish to not be caught directly in the firing line, but many states are now increasingly concluding that the options are narrowing, uh, given the change in posture uh, by the PRC in particular and the American response uh, since 2017 with the H.R. McMaster redefinition of the national security strategy. In the Pacific Island countries, uh, which I know reasonably well because um, when I was in office for quite a period of time, I was uh, chairman of what's called the Pacific Island Forum. It's what brings together the island leaders each year. The interest of the island states is pretty simple. There are 13 of them in Melanesia, Micronesia, and Polynesia. Um, and... Um, one, it's fisheries, fisheries protection. Number two, it's climate change. Three of them, the Marshalls, Tuvalu and Kiribati, uh, face uh, existential problems with coastal inundation. And three, um, it's economic opportunity, given these are fragile economies, which is why we have a number of Pacific Island worker agreements with Australia, whereby agricultural workers often come into the country from Pacific Islands on visa programs. In fact, I initiated that when I was in office at the request of the Pacific Islanders themselves. So the important thing for the United States to understand is to understand the reality from the Islanders' perspective. And as I've said in another forum recently, the biggest thing any of us can do as a concrete and practical act of solidarity with our Pacific Island friends and neighbours is uh, to, through our, the... Uh, Air Force capabilities and surveillance capabilities of the United States, Australia and New Zealand to provide effective fisheries surveillance. Because if their fishery stocks are stolen, which is what's happening, uh, often by China, sometimes by Taiwan, sometimes by Korea, sometimes by Japan, then it is depleting a valuable resource. And in a protein-challenged world, this is becoming more acute. So getting on the right side of that is what's critical as opposed to just seeing the island states as a bunch of geopolitical pawns. I'm going to take one last question, if, especially if we have one from a student. I'd like to hear from a student. Okay, over here. Um, hey, thank you for your very thought-provoking speech. I'm a student here at GPS, and I'm very, interesting. Uh, I'm very interested by your speech, but I'm also very interested in uh, seeing from my perspective, that is, uh, many of these policy and reforms, they're from a domestic or responding to problems at home instead of just trying to consolidate their power. For, for example, many of the zero COVID uh, policies, they are, uh, they are widely supported by the general public, as far mm. as I know, because they're, I, I feel like another thing is that a million people, uh, have died here and then it, it has shocked a lot of the local population and the, and the propaganda that also support this kind of narrative that it's very important. Also, in general, uh, Chinese uh, perspective, it's very important to protect our elderly people. And also here, uh, COVID deaths are primarily, or a lot of them, they are working class minorities. So it's very important to see the kind of disparities in the health mm. accesses. And also you talk about the uh, 
this year they have cracked down on tech industries or many other uh, industries. But another issue is that they want to promote the kind of industries. Is there a question? Yeah, so it's, they're responding to, uh, I'm responding, the first question I've already mentioned is that many of the reforms, they're targeting, targeted to re uh, respond or solve many of the issues or challenges or public hmm. opinions, but instead, not, not just solely to consolidate their power. Many of the reforms, they're trying to promote their own domestic uh, self-sufficiency in tech industries, and they have been inspired by the deindustrialization here. So it's very important conversation, too. No, I think uh, your comments are entirely valid. I mean, I haven't sought to present a, um, uh, in 30 minutes anyway, a, um, a, um, a one-dimensional view of uh, what uh, is unfolding within China itself. Um, the system is seeking to respond to its perception of domestic social and economic needs. Um, and there's a huge internal debate about COVID policy. There's a huge internal debate about education policy. There's a huge internal debate about health policy, retirement income policy, etc., food quality standards and the rest. I mean, this is um, uh, a really complex domestic agenda. What I was simply describing was the shift in economic policy uh, direction and my conclusions about the consequence of that in terms of Chinese economic growth. And as a consequence of that, what dilemmas does this present to the next set of Chinese leaders? Do they sustain that course in terms of maintaining political control over the private sector, uh, or do they loosen up again? Uh, and the evidence points I've seen so far is that they're unlikely uh, to loosen up much, uh, but uh, we're still several months away from the Congress. And just to conclude, as someone said before, I think it was Susan, that the picture I painted is a little gloomy. Um, I suppose that comes from four years of reading um, Xi Jinping's works on Marx and Lenin. Um, and, uh, you know, he's not, he, they're not a bunch of funsters. And uh, so, um, and particularly Lenin. Len Lenin lacks a sense of humour altogether. Uh, so, uh, uh, and remember, this is a party which describes itself as a Marxist-Leninist party. And if you really want to get a sense of Xi Jinping's ideological uh, barometer, Read a speech which is rarely talked about, which is his speech on the 200th anniversary of the birth of Marx uh, in 2018. It's a remarkable speech about the future of Marxism as for the world, not just for China. Notwithstanding what I've just said about the nature of political and ideological and strategic change in China, the argument I advance in the book, which I want to retail to each of you, it's twenty nine ninety five. <laughs> I've, got, I've got no idea. The, uh, but the argument, the reason I wrote this book is, notwithstanding what I have said, how do we manage this form of Xi Jinping's China? I am an old-fashioned person. I don't like war. I really don't like war. Uh, therefore, is there a form of managed strategic competition between these two giants in the world's living room? United States and China, or unmanaged strategic competition, whereby daily equilibrium is established through push and shove between the armed forces of the two countries, in the hope that no one pushes too far and the shoves don't go too far. There's a separate debate about how practical that is, but I argue strongly in the book is recognise the realism of the strategic challenge and managing the strategic red lines, engage in non-lethal strategic competition between the two sides, while still creating political and diplomatic space to do work on the global common goods we share on the climate, 
on the planet, on global public health, and on global financial and economic stability in what is still a highly fractious age. So that's why I wrote the book. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.